Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. I am really excited about this message series and really excited about what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get into it, let's back up a little bit to the offering song that the worship team, the resurrected one is resurrecting me. Um, I don't know about you, I slept horribly last night. I need a little resurrection in my life. Anyone need a little resurrection in their life? So I just want to make sure you're with me today. We're, we're going to be talking about some heady stuff, and we might even go a little bit long today, so buckle up. It's, it's going to be exciting. The message series is based on the book of Genesis, and each week we're taking a different TV show, a TV show that maybe people would binge watch, and we're trying to connect the characters and the relationships and the plot twists of, of those TV shows with the lives of the people that we read about in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And so uh, today it's This Is Us, and I hope you brought your Kleenex with you. It centers around a family, the Pearsons. Uh, Jack and Rebecca are this married couple, and they're getting ready to become parents for the very first time. <laughs> they have triplets. I mean, we have six kids, and sometimes people say, man, that must be hard to have six kids. At least we spread them out over several years. Three at once, I can't even imagine. That'd be... So they're getting ready for triplets. It's Jack's birthday, and she goes into labor. Rebecca goes into labor six weeks premature. And they get to the hospital. The doc who's been walking with them through the entire pregnancy, he's having emergency surgery on his appendix. And so there's this new doc who shows up. They've never met him before, complete stranger. He's going to be the one delivering uh, the babies. And he wants to talk to them about the very real possibility that there's going to be some complications around this delivery, and Jack doesn't want to hear any of it. Only good things. Only the, the only thing we're going to talk about is the possibility that things today are going to go exactly the way I want them to go, exactly the way I've got planned out. And, and at first glance, I think we would say, that would be a pretty good way to live life, Right? If, if we could just plot it all out, and here's how my life is going to go, and here's what's going to happen, and when it's going to happen, and who it's going to happen with, that would be the very best kind of life, right? If I could just make sure life will go according to my plans, then everything would be great. Well, let's look at some wisdom from Scripture. This is Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Read this out loud with me. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. So the Bible is really clear about this. Faithful people make plans. Some of you are planners. I'm not so much a planner. Faithful people make plans. It's okay to be spontaneous every once in a while, but you got to make plans. I mean, don't fall into the trap of thinking the most faithful, most spiritual people in the world are people who never make plans. They just wake up in the morning and they're like, okay, Lord, what are we going to do today? I mean, that, that'd be like saying the most faithful way to prepare a sermon is to not really spend any time studying throughout the week, not really look at the text, not think about what you maybe want to say or how you're going to say it, just show up and start talking, which is what I do, but I, I'm just not, that's not necessarily the most faithful way to do it, right? No. Faithful people make plans, and then they watch and they pay attention to see ways in which God's plans and our plans start to intersect. And so if you're making a whole lot of plans, but there's no intersection with God's plans, uh, something's wrong there. Any of you remember what it was like to be a senior in high school? For some of you, it was a really long time ago. Others of you are living it right now, or maybe you are parents whose children are going through it right now. When you're a senior in high school, you get asked about your plans a lot. 
Hey, what are your plans after graduation? Are you going to get a job? Where are you going to work? And are you going to live at home or get an apartment? And if you, if you need an apartment, are you looking for a roommate? Because I might know somebody. Or are you going to college? And where are you going to college? And what will your major be? And so there's all these questions. And kids put all this pressure on themselves. And the adults in their lives don't really help out. We kind of pile the pressure on and keep asking questions as well. Here's some data that I think it maybe relieve a little bit of pressure for people in, in that kind of situation. This is based on uh, statistics from the 2010 uh, census, so it's getting to be a little old, but I, I think it still is helpful. They found out that people who had college degrees, 62% of people with college degrees say they're working in a job that does not even require a college degree. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying I doubt if that was the plan. I'm going to go to college and get my degree and then work in a job that doesn't even require a degree? How about this one? 27%, only 27% of college graduates say they're in a job that's even remotely connected to the degree that they have. So we put all this pressure on 17-year-old, 18-year-old kids to have a plan, to know what they're going to do with the rest of their life when the vast majority of us had no clue when we were 17 or 18, and probably still don't have a whole lot of a clue. So that was true for me. I mean, I went to Central College in, in Pella. I majored in communication, and only because my junior year, about halfway through, they said, Scott, you need to pick a, a, a major. I mean, what's going so I picked communication, had no idea what I wanted to do with that. A buddy of mine was a, a business major. He said, Scott, you should take this class. It's called Organizational Theory and Behavior. It's a part of the business program. I think you'll like the professor, Dr. Jan Fried. So I signed up for the class, even though it had nothing to do with my communication program. And it was a great class. I really I learned a ton from Dr. Fried. And I think she liked me because after graduation, she called me up and said her church in Des Moines was looking for a, a youth guy, someone to work with middle school students, high school students. She thought I should apply, so I did. And that was how I got into ministry. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. I was at that church for three years. Uh, my wife, Wendy, and I started dating uh, when we were there, got married there. And then we started thinking about seminary and where, where are we going to go to a seminary and, and making plans and that sort of thing. I grew up, the church where I was born and raised, it was a Quaker church. And so as we were looking for seminaries, one of the seminaries we looked at was a Quaker seminary out in Portland, Oregon, George Fox University, it was called. And we went and visited and like, it just felt right. We, we were convinced as we were praying with people, we were convinced this is where God wants us to go. So we move out to Portland, Oregon to become a Quaker pastor and my Quaker seminary advisor, Dr. Mary Kate Morris, who taught Greek and leadership at that seminary, she says to me, hey, Scott, I'm helping start an evangelical Lutheran church in the suburbs of Portland with a couple other of the professors, Dr. Steve Delamarter, the Old Testament prof, and Dr. Dan Bruner, the church history professor. If you've been around Hope for a while, you've heard me talk about my buddy Dan. He was helping start that church. So she says, why don't you come and, you know, you can run the children's program and the student ministry program for us, and we'll get this Lutheran church going. So I said, okay, I bet I'll learn a lot being at a church with three college uh, seminary professors. But the whole time in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is so weird. What am I doing at a Lutheran church? I'm never going to be Lutheran. Uh, this is a Lutheran. Yeah. Are you guys away? I'm not sure. That's the funny part about that. All right. 
We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. And I'm guessing you can tell similar stories in your lives. The way, times when you look back and you see your plans and God's plans kind of came together in just the right way, at just the right moment. I got to officiate a wedding yesterday. One of the things I love to do is ask couples, how did you meet? How, how did that intersection happen? And these God moments, these holy moments. And sometimes when God shows up in our life, it, it changes things pretty dramatically. But I think more often than not, the, the most accurate thing to say would be this. The Lord determines our steps. Scott's plan is to major in communication. The Lord determines what kind of communicating Scott's going to do. Scott's plan is to be a pastor. The Lord determines what kind of pastor Scott's going to be. We can make our plans. The Lord determines our steps. And, and maybe that'd be a fun thing for you guys to do at brunch or at lunch is to talk about what are those ways when you look back in the past, you see that God has showed up in your life just the right way, just the right time. It's kind of fun. Here's what's not fun for me. Looking forward and doing the same thing. Looking forward through the eyes of faith and trusting. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I believe God will do it again. God's done it before, God will do it again. The Lord will continue to determine my steps. That's a lot more challenging, isn't it? If you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, we're going to be taking a look at the steps a man named uh, Abram makes. At, at the beginning of the story, he's called Abram. Later on in the story, he's Abraham. God changes his name. Same for his wife, Sarai, at the beginning, Sarah, later on. So Abraham and Sarah. And as you read along or as you just listen, I want you to be, how would you have responded, how would you respond if God were to say this to you? The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, at this point in Abram's life, he doesn't really have a relationship with God. God just kind of shows up and says this to him. Abraham can't look back and say, here's all the times where God's proven himself faithful in the past. This is like the first conversation they're having. Leave everything, everything that makes you comfortable, everything that makes you kind of feel safe, everything that you know, and journey into the unknown with me. Now, here's a, here's a picture of the kind of the Middle East and Abraham's day. We're told at the end of chapter 11, he's living in Ur of the Chaldeans when he gets married. And then his father, a man named Terah, says, we're going to leave Ur of the Chaldeans. We're going to go travel up the Euphrates River, and we're going to end up in Haran. It's about 500 miles. Most people think you could go 10 to 20 miles a day uh, traveling in that kind of way in, in that day. So 25 days, 50 days, that's if you're traveling every day. I bet it was more like a three-month to six-month journey for them. They're in Haran when you get to chapter 12 when God says go. And can't you imagine Abram probably has some questions for God? Like, where are we going? And God says, I'll show you. And Abram says, okay, that's good. But my wife wants to know what we need to pack. Like warm weather, cold weather. I mean, what, what are we doing here? How long is this? What? I'll show you. That's all God says. No details. I'm asking you to go. And at some point, I will say, Stop. 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 I mean, that was just perfect, wasn't it? 
They're on their way to Heron. Man, can you be here every week? That would be perfect. God says, I'll tell you when to stop. And what's amazing to me, what's amazing to me is Abraham does it. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. Wait, did he want to be baptized? Is that what we're supposed to? No, we'll wait. Okay. Abraham departed. Now, they end up in, it's called the land of Canaan in this part of the Old Testament. Later on, it's called the the promised land. And we know it today as Israel or, or the Holy Land. That's where Abraham and Sarah end up. And then kind of starting in in chapter 12, for the next several chapters, what we see happening in this part of the story is God begins to build a track record in Abraham's life. God makes promises. uh, God continues to build this relationship with Abraham. And so we're getting to this place where, where God's trying to help Abraham see the very best way to live life is by trusting God, by living by faith in God. It's the very best way to live your life. And so there's a famine in the land, and Abraham and Sarah have to go to Egypt. You see all the green. They go to Egypt when there's a famine, and then they end up back, and they've got more flocks, and they've got more prosperity, and and everything's kind of going great for them. There's a family dispute. Who's going to get what land? And God helps Abraham settle that dispute, and things continue to go well. God promises they're going to have a child. They're going to have a son. They're going to be parents of a great nation. That's part of the reason for the name change from Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. But then they have to wait, and they lose patience as they're waiting, and they make their own plans, and their plans do not intersect with God's plans. And it creates some dysfunction in the family system. But eventually, 25 years later, God keeps his promise and Isaac is born, this son to Abraham and Sarah. Everything is going great. And then we get to Genesis chapter 22. It begins this way. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. And there's part of the beginning of Genesis 22 that sounds a little bit like the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. God says, go, take your son. Abram's like, okay, where are we going? God says, I'll show you. One of the differences between chapter 12 and chapter 22 is now there's a track record. God has been keeping promises in Abraham's life. God has proven himself faithful and trustworthy. And Abraham can see that when he looks back and he sees the way in which his plans and God's plans intersect. But now Abraham is in this critical kind of place where you and I find ourselves every day. What does it look like to look forward putting our faith in God, trusting in God's plan? Go and sacrifice your son. This is part of the plan. We don't know how old Isaac is at this point. Uh, the Hebrew word most often gets kind of translated lad in, in the New Living Translation we preach from. It says boy. We don't know, is he seven? Is he 13? Is he 17? We don't know. What we do know is it's been years. Abraham and Sarah have been parents of this child for years when God says, now I want you to sacrifice him. Everything's going great. Everything's going according to plan until it's not. 
in that pilot episode of the TV show, This Is Us, Jack Pearson and his wife, everything's going great. They're expecting, they're getting ready to become parents, and it's Jack's birthday. The kids are going to have the same birthday as him. Everything's awesome, except for it's not. There's complications. And Jack doesn't want to think about it. Jack doesn't want to talk about it, but that's just not reality. I mean, real life is there are things that happen that don't go according to plan. There are bad things that happen, and I think all of us would, would be able to say that more often than not, our faith gets forged when things don't go according to plan, when our faith is getting tested. Jack Pearson is about to have his faith tested. Take a look. Maybe not the way you planned. We can make our plans. The Lord determines our steps. Uh, writing in The Atlantic, a review for this pilot episode of This Is Us, Megan Garber writes, How do you, in the pilot of your show, introduce five different characters with four different storylines and get viewers to care intimately about each of them? How do you fast-track empathy? This Is Us has settled on an effective solution. It has made characters who are flawed and surprising and therefore relatably human. When these characters interact with each other, they cut the sweet with the salty and the bitter. Garber goes on to say with shows like Parenthood and now This Is Us, NBC has gone from being must-see TV to must-weep TV. <laughs> must-weep TV because life is hard. It's good. It's awesome. It's filled with great moments of joy and optimism and happiness and hope. And it's hard. And one of the reasons the show is so successful and, and popular among so many people is because it actually refuses to do what Jack Pearson wants the doctor to do in that opening clip. Let's just talk about the good. Let's just talk about everything that's positive. The show, I think, kind of courageously tackles the realities of pain and suffering and rejection and addiction and the brokenness that that leads to. It's must-weep TV because it does both things simultaneously. It talks about how great, how awesome uh, life can be and, and the ideal, everything that we hope for in terms of our relationships. And at the same time, it talks about the reality of the sting that we all experience when life doesn't go according to our plans. This Is Us insists on being real. And so does the writer of the book of Genesis. My Old Testament professor, uh, Dr. Steve Delamarter, the worship leader at the Lutheran church I was in when I was in seminary, he used to say, think, think of the book of Genesis as a family photo album. You know, family photo albums where you, you got pictures of baptisms and you got pictures of, you know, births and birthdays and weddings and anniversaries and, you know, good things, championship seasons and that sort of thing. He says the difference with the book of Genesis, it doesn't just show the highlights, it also includes the lowlights. You know, the, think about if you <laughs> had like a family photographer and that morning, Monday morning, you can't get the kids out of bed for school, and they're screaming at you, and you're trying not to scream back at them, and the photographer says, hey, stop, everyone say cheese, you know? Put that in the family photo album. Or, you know, when you lose the championship game, or if you were coached by me in Ankeny Little League in 2010, you don't win a single game. Put that in the photo album. 
when your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you, when you get home uh, after curfew one too many times, and then, hey, let's have the family picture before we go at it. When your boss fires you, when someone you love dies. Genesis is this family photo album that has the good and the bad and everything in between. One of the go-to books for us at Hope for the staff members, for the, the volunteer leaders, is a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, written by a pastor named uh, Pete Scazzaro. He's at a church in New York City. And, and part of what he does in the book is offer a little bit of a critique of the church in America, how we're not really keeping it real. We kind of live in this pretend fantasy faith world where we pretend like everything is great. We've got catchphrases like God is good all the time and all the time God is good. And, and don't misunderstand me, I actually believe God is good all the time. But when we have catchphrases like that, what we begin to communicate to the congregation is if you're confused, if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you're sad, if life's not going the way that you want it to go and, and you're wondering where is God in all of this, you just have to pretend like everything's fine. It's great. God is good all the time. So instead, Scazzaro says this, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. Reality is where we meet God. If we aren't real about the full spectrum of our emotional life, and again, I think that's one of the reasons This Is Us is so popular, it goes through the whole emotional gamut. If we're not honest with God about the emotions that we're going through, then God doesn't have the opportunity to meet us and change us and comfort us and help us and heal us in all those moments. Genesis 22, things are about to get real for Abraham. God's testing him. Go and sacrifice your son. Here's verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac, chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering, and set out for the place God had told him about. If you don't have an emotional response when we read through this part of the story, if you are not bothered by this part of the story, you're not being real. God says, Abraham, I want you to burn your son alive as a way of proving your love for me. That's messed up. Why doesn't Abraham say no? Why doesn't he argue? Why doesn't he question? Why doesn't he refuse to do this terrible thing that God's asking him to do? I mean, Jack Pearson in This Is Us, the doctor just wants to talk about the possibility that something bad might happen during the delivery of, of his children. And Jack says, we're not even going to talk about something bad happening. How come when God says to Abraham, go and sacrifice your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, why doesn't Abraham say, no, I refuse to put my faith in a God who would ask me to do something like that? Why does Abraham get up early the next morning and set off for the place that God told him about? Let's go back to the map of the Middle East. They, they settle Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. They settle to the west of that in the land of Canaan. They're surrounded by other tribes, countries, Philistia, Sidon, Ammon, Moab, Edom, among others. All of these tribes and countries and nations, they, they have gods that they worship and goddesses that they worship. 
multiple gods and goddesses, but also chief gods and goddesses. So the Sidonians worship the goddess Ashtoreth. Ammon, their chief god, is Molech. For Moab, it's Chemosh. For the Philistines, it's Dagon. All of the Canaanite uh, nations, they worship Baal, Baal, however you want to pronounce it, and Asherah. You can read about this in Scripture, but we also know this to be true from non-Christians, from people who don't believe the Bible, from uh, scientists, archaeologists, sociologists. They tell us this historical reality. The worship of all these gods and goddesses around Abraham and Sarah, it involves human sacrifice, almost always child sacrifice. And so you and I read Genesis 22, and we're repulsed and confused, and we don't like that God says to Abraham, go sacrifice your son. I just want you to know, Abraham would not have been surprised when God asks him to do this thing. Abraham would have been like, oh, of course, This is what gods and goddesses do. This is what Yahweh does. Apparently, I'm just getting to know the guy. But he wants me to do what every other god... So, Genesis 22 is a test of Abraham's faith. And, And a lot of times we think, so the test is, Abraham, are you willing to do whatever God asks you to do to prove your love for God? That is not the test. The test of Genesis 22 is simply this. Who do you believe God is? Who do you believe God is, Abraham? And this is going to be the test for you and me as well. Who do you believe God is? Genesis 22 is a story that sets the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob apart from all of the other gods and goddesses around Abraham and Sarah. This is God distinguishing himself. God saying, I am a different kind of God. Abraham, do you believe Yahweh, do you believe God is not the kind of God who would ask parents to hurt their children as some perverted way of proving their love for God? That Genesis 22, it's more about God than it is about Abraham. Here's another way to think about it. The, the word for tested that shows up at the beginning of Genesis 22, it also is translated prove in, in other places of Scripture. So when you read through Genesis 22, ask yourself, is this a story about Abraham proving his love for God Or is this a story about God proving his love for Abraham? And and not only that, ask yourself, what is Christianity about? Is Christianity about you and me doing things to prove our love for God? Or is it about God doing something to prove his love for us? Genesis 22, it is not all the other gods and goddesses. You've got to sacrifice your kids for me. God says, no, 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 no. My son, my son, willingly will lay down his life to prove God's love for the world. And you, and you see it when you look back. There's all of these signs all over the place in Genesis 24. Abraham and Isaac travel for three days. <clears throat> Jesus is in the tomb for three days. Abraham places wood on his son's shoulders, wood for the sacrifice. Jesus carries the wooden cross for the sacrifice. Isaac asks, hey, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? Jesus is called the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They go to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is the mount upon which King David will build the temple in the heart of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is tried and arrested and just outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified. And we see this when we look back. 
We see the way in which God's plans intersect with our plans. Abraham has to figure this out. He has to learn this. He has to trust this. He has to put his faith in this as he looks forward. God will provide. Who do you believe God is? When things are not going according to your plan, who do you believe God is? Of course, that makes sense. That's, that's who God is. God kind of loves to watch people suffer. Or do you believe God is a God who shows up and who provides, even if the provision doesn't look exactly like we maybe anticipated? We go through all kinds of circumstances in life where our faith gets tested. Maybe you're going through a season of testing right now. Maybe the test for you is trusting uh, God's plan for your future. You're that 17-year-old, that 18-year-old, and you just don't know. Or maybe you're a 54-year-old and you have no idea what you want to do with the rest of your life. God will provide. Maybe the season of testing for you is you've looked at a pregnancy test one too many times that reads negative. Or you're trying to move on and move forward after a miscarriage or a child who was stillborn, or a rebellious child who has disowned you, or judgmental parents who have essentially kicked you out of their life. God will provide. Maybe the test for you is how do you deal with the grief after the loss of someone that you love? Do you trust God is a God who shows up and God is a God who provides even if the provision doesn't look like what you thought or expected or anticipated? In uh, this show, This Is Us, again, I think one of the reasons it's so popular, every episode, there's a test for one or more of the characters. This pilot episode, there's a test that Jack and Rebecca have to go through when the delivery doesn't go the way they want it to go and they lose one of their children. But then it fast forwards, it kind of jumps back and forth from that day, the day that the big three, they're called, are born, and then what What's going on in the lives of those children 36 years later as they're trying to celebrate their 36th birthday and they're looking back and going, you know, life is not going the way I thought it would go. There's been some great things and there have been some things that are just not so great and they have to figure out what does it look like, what does it mean to look forward and to trust that God will provide. It's true for the characters on that show and it's true for you and me. This is us. Take a look. Oh, Lord, I love that line right before the guy lights a cigarette in a hospital. <laughs> Life is strange, congratulations. And that's true for all of us. There's these awesome, incredible moments where we just know, we know that there is a God who loves us and has a future and a hope for us. But there are other moments where we're just not sure and we have doubts and we have fears that can overwhelm and, and rob us of life and faith. So Lord, remind us in these closing moments that for every fear, there's an empty grave, that you are a God who you do whatever it takes to prove your love for us. Help us to know that love, to feel that love, to experience that love, and then ultimately to share that love with the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.